Good morning, Raz City, and welcome to our Sunday morning gathering at home edition, where we all get to worship the Lord together uh, well apart, uh, but in our PJs. My name is Sheena, uh, coming to you pre-recorded from the east side in Woodbury. I'm usually on the welcome team and the prayer team, but today I have the great pleasure of getting to read our scripture passage. John chapter 4, verses 43 to 54. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Amen. Now back to you, Joel. Hey, what's up, everyone? Thanks for being with us this morning here at Resurrection City Church at home. Uh, my name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. And like Julie said, we are going to be uh, walking through the book of John and picking back up on that here again this week um, after we, uh, we walk through uh, the early part of chapter four last week. We're going to finish off uh, chapter four. If you're just visiting with us this Sunday morning virtually, we're really uh, excited and, and privileged to have you join with us. Thank you for being with us. We hope that you... Um, that you experience God, that you, you meet Him, that you, you learn as we study His Word uh, this Sunday morning, and that you can find peace and hope in the midst of a really uh, anxious time. Uh, like Julie said earlier, um, we are going to be also doing question and answer time at the end of the sermon. So uh, if you have questions or, uh, you know, maybe they're related specifically to the text or maybe they spin off of the text, you know, some, some sort of concept that comes up that, that I don't get a chance to address. Or if I say something that you want, like, some clarification on or something, feel free to throw that in the comments. Uh, we'd love to uh, have that sort of interaction with each other. And so if we have a chance at the end, uh, yeah, we'd love to just dialogue with you in that way, uh, like Julie 
Julie said earlier. Please don't try to just stump me, though. Um, uh, <laughs> but uh, seriously, if you have a hard question, I'll give it my best, my best crack. So um, today we are returning to this idea of signs. So if you remember uh, a few sermons back uh, in chapter 2, when Jesus turns the water into wine, John brings up this idea of signs. And, and we talked a little bit about what that means and, and, and the idea of miracles and, and how we should maybe get, get a sense for what those mean. We're going to pick back up on that subject today, talk a little bit more about signs, how we think through what signs are. But we're specifically talking about it um, through the lens of healing, a, phys- a physical healing of people who have, have some sort of uh, physical infirmity or pain or, or something like that. That's, that's the sign that we see in today's passage. And so I think that that's pertinent in the, time, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, right? Talking about the idea of health. I think it's good timing for that. But spe- and spe- more specifically, what I want to do is address sort of the topic of how do, how do faith and belief and healing all sort of wrap together? Because we see that that's what, what kind of takes place in, uh, in the passage today. Um, now, before we can do that, we really kind of have to stop ourselves and we have to sort of empty our pockets at the door, so to speak, right? Kind of like, kind of like we're, we're going into a baseball game or something like that. We got to pull everything out of our pocket, make sure we, you know, we know what we have and we're going to have to leave some things at the door actually, because I think that we, we have this sort of sense when we think of healing and physical health, as we live in what is certainly the most affluent country in the history of the world, where, where people, uh, I think have an expectation or, or feel like, uh, we have a right to physical health. Um, a lot of times we, we talk about that, and we can apply that sort of idea when we come to the biblical concept of healing. That can kind of bleed in without us even realizing it when we approach the subject of, of healing. And I think the, the reason that that is, is it's good for us to just kind of pause and, like, like I said, as we are pulling things out of our pockets, taking a look at what's there. Um, so a, a guy named Christian Smith, he's a... Um, He's a, uh, uh, a sociologist at the University of Notre Dame. Um, about a decade ago, he kind of coined a term uh, to describe the default religion of most people in the United States, even people who call themselves Christians, or it doesn't, doesn't even have to be Christians necessarily. And it's a big word, but I'll unpack it for you. The, the word he used to describe it is called moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, each of those words in there, moralistic therapeutic deism, has uh, a specific... Um, a meaning attached to it. So let me just unpack that for you. First of all, we, we believe, uh, or most people believe that um, we should be good, that it's good to be good, that God desires us to be good, and so like we should, in some vague sense at least, try to be good. Now, there's not consensus on what it means to be good, maybe, but we should try to be good. That's something we should all strive after. Um, therapeutic, that, that kind of means that God is there to help us find fulfillment, to help us uh, to find happiness, and that's sort of his goal. He, he's there, he's therapeutic for us to kind of lead and guide us towards some sort of fulfillment and happiness. And the deism part is to say, if you're familiar with the classical philosophy of deism, it just means that like we believe that gods exist, but they're pretty far off and they don't really have that much to do with us. And aside from God being there to sort of help us find health and happiness, um, he's, not, he's, he's kind of far off. He doesn't have that much to do in our lives other than wanting us to be good people and sort of helping us be happy. He doesn't really have that much to do with us. He's, he's happy. He's to let us do whatever we want as long as we're finding happiness. And that's really where, where most people are at. And I think even for us, even if we are really committed, we, you know, 
we we have a stronger sense of, of who God is, who Jesus is, what the gospel is, than what is revealed in that, that can still sort of creep into our mindset, especially when we we, we approach the subject of happiness, whether that and health, whether that's mental or physical health, we can kind of incorporate that into that scheme to try to think about it all as about happiness. And we just sort of desire that God is always going to be doing stuff to make us happy, which certainly includes us being healthy. Now, what, okay, I'm not saying any of that's wrong, that we should desire happiness, and we should desire, you know, should ask God to heal us. We're going to see Jesus heal someone in this passage. But I think it's still important for us, after we've sort of emptied our pockets, to ask what is the role of healing biblically, okay? Sort of opposed to that sort of moralistic, therapeutic deism that we find ourselves in. And we see it right here. Again, going back to the subject of signs, John 4.54, we're told that this was the second sign that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So healing is a sign. It's not a right Okay, I think that's a big, uh, a big thing to take away uh, from studying the, the, the idea of healing and, and, and health in the Bible is that healing from God is a sign that points to something. It's not a right we have. Now, remember, signs point to something, right? We all are familiar with this. Maybe you haven't driven in a couple of months, but you at least remember what signs are for on the road, right? They're supposed to kind of guide you towards something. And we actually have signs like this. If you get outside of maybe the cities, you'll you'll find these things that are called guide signs. They're the big green signs, and they'll say like 37 miles to Minneapolis, right? And so what that's indicating to you is two different things. That sign is telling you two different things. First of all, it's letting you know you're on the right road. If you were on the wrong road, you wouldn't see any signs that were telling you you're approaching your destination. And the second thing it tells you is how far away you are, right? It gives you a sense that like, you're really far away right now. You're maybe on the right track, but you've got a ways to go or you're getting pretty close. Like you're going to be there very shortly. It's just a couple of miles and here's a sign to sort of let you know that. So that's the, f- the function of signs. Now healings, just like uh, other miracles, are supposed to function as signs, telling us we're on the right path towards, towards uh, a certain destination. We'll talk about that here in a second. And, 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 and then um, also letting us know how close we are to that destination. Right or giving us a sense that we're not far away from it, at least. Now, when we when it comes to healings, we can have what what some people might call an overrealized eschatology. That just means a sense for what God is doing. Sometimes we can think that even though we that the sign means that we're there, when actually it's there to point us to actually we're we're, we're on the way towards it. We can kind of overrealize that we're at the destination already. We can think that here and now is the kingdom of God is fully here, which means I should always be happy and healthy, and that's actually not how it plays out biblically. Healings are signs that point us that we're on the way to God's destination. Now, what is that destination? I think it's important for us, again, if we're talking about signs, to have a sense towards what the signs are pointing towards. And we find at the very end of the Bible, the very last, the second to last chapter of the whole Bible, we finally get a a very full picture of what all the signs have been pointing towards. We find this in, in Revelation. This is the last book of the Bible. Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4. We're told, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things 
has passed away. So we get this sense that, that there is a, a tender and gentle coming of God to us now that indicates a relationship. And so this is what God healing the earth is about. Okay, It's about bringing us back into right relation with him. Now, that moralistic therapeutic deism thing I was talking about before, there really isn't a relationship in that, okay? And that's one of the key uh, things that differentiates it from real Christianity is that God is concerned about being in relation with us, and when we're in relation with him, we see things like healing start to happen. When they happen now, there are signs of what's going to happen when the relationship is fully restored to the point where God is himself fully dwelling with us on earth as it is in heaven, where things like like sin and, and, and illness and disease and pain and brokenness are, are cast away because God's presence just fills our space so much that they literally cannot exist. The, it cannot handle being in the same space as God in his presence. But we're not at that time yet right now, okay? We, we are still waiting for the world to be healed of rebellion and the effects of evil. And so because of that, when we, when we see healings now, what they're telling us is that we're not far off from the kingdom, that God's uh, presence is, 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 is breaking into the present now. And we see that because of healing taking place, that reconciliation is happening on earth as it is in heaven, but it's not here fully. And we should not expect that it's here fully until we see Jesus himself come back, just like we get that picture in Revelation. And so what Jesus, when he heals Back then, what we'll see in the passage and now, what he's doing is he's inviting people in to, 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 to get on the right road to lead towards that final destination, right? Of being a part of that kingdom, being a part of that full restoration, that, that reconciliation of relationship that, will hap- that happens in the present now, but will happen fully someday when Jesus himself returns. And so, so what, what, what we're waiting for is to invite people into this uh, to elicit what is a deeper miracle even than healing itself, which is faith. And you'll notice in the story, you heard Sheena read this beforehand, that, that the healing happens and then later on the royal official and, his, and, his, and the people around him believe in Jesus because of it. Now, all that said, I just want to throw this out there. Um, because we're stuck in the middle of this time where we're sort of figuring out like how to how to how how to find health, we should not neglect like seeking out professionals, right? Medical professionals who are going to help us in the present with with what the best we have, what science has to offer us to try to find healing in the present. Now we do that. We pray to God for healing. We can do both of those things a lot of times and we'll find for reasons that we don't always understand, healing doesn't always happen. Okay, it, it, maybe that's because it's not going to lead to faith. Maybe that it might not be the right place that God has determined for heaven to sort of shine through the cracks. Uh, maybe you know, maybe it might uh, lead to greater faith to not heal in a certain circumstance, right? And so, so even if we have um, these misguided expectations, right? Maybe even if we have those sometimes, it's still hard when, when God doesn't heal. It's still hard when we're, we're stuck with things like chronic illness and pain. Um, I know a lot of people at Res City actually struggle with that. And, and, and 
me myself, I, I'm impacted by this because Julie herself actually suffers from chronic illness. And so it's a very real important thing to us. We we talk a lot about, we we still pray for healing on a regular basis, but we have seen that God doesn't always heal. That's just a, 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 um, a, something we, we have seen, right? And maybe you've had your experience of this with a loved one who's had, uh, who's battled, say, cancer or something like that. Maybe you have seen the effects of God not healing. And that is a hard thing to live through no matter where you're at, Right? It's just hard that God doesn't always heal. And, and I, I want to talk about the, it's a, how it's a very normal thing to ask, why didn't God heal in this instance? But I, I actually want to come back to that later on. And I want to talk about what happens when God doesn't heal and why we still believe that God is working in the midst of that, even though healing hasn't happened. But like I said, let's wait till the end of the sermon to get to that. I think it's important enough to kind of give it as sort of like, like a big application point at the end. Okay, so, so let's actually get into the text. Let's talk a little bit about what, what's going on there to sort of set up that payoff at the end. Okay, so, so if you have your Bible with you and you want to follow along with us, we'll also have uh, most of this on the screen as well. Uh, John 4, 46 to 47. Now, once more, he, this is Jesus, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. So John is reminding us, hey, this is, this is the place where Jesus' first sign took place. And this is back in chapter 2. We had a sermon on it, the water into wine at the wedding ceremony. You can go back and watch that one um, if, if you want to kind of understand that one a little bit more and weren't able to catch that sermon before. Now, there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. So, so Jesus is clearly known as a sort of signs and, and wonder worker, and people knew this from the Passover. That's actually in the passage, like right before this. I didn't read that verse, but we're told that his, uh, Jesus, you know, who he is and what he's been doing is starting to spread now. This sort of, it's starting to kind of catch on with people around, uh, around the region. And so the Greek word for royal official here is actually basilik, basilikos, which just means royal. So, so literally how it should read is there's a royal whose son lay sick at Capernaum. Now this guy could have been a, a Jewish royal court uh, official under Herod. He could have been a member of Herod's family. Um, there's an there's a off chance that he was maybe a Roman uh, or a centurion or something like that. Uh, we're, we're not sure, but there is a story in the Synoptic Gospels that's a little bit similar that includes a centurion, so it could be that. Um, and, and we don't know. It doesn't matter, but we know this guy's important. Now, it's interesting because in the next passage, directly after this one, we get another story of Jesus healing someone but this time, the, the person that he heals is basically like the first century of equivalent of a homeless, paralyzed guy. Okay? So what we see is right back-to-back stories that Jesus is going to heal both people equally with no discrimination. Uh, he is not going to go out of his way to heal the royal person's son ahead of this, uh, this crippled guy, right? He's going he's gonna to treat both exactly the same. We sort of see the radical, um, the radical uh, uh, level playing field that happens as Jesus approaches, that no one is better than anybody else, that Jesus is willing to heal everybody and anybody in the midst of this. He doesn't treat anyone differently. And it certainly is, is, is like a kind of a jarring picture to picture like a really royal person. Picture like uh, like a, a state official or, or a, a government official of some country like coming and begging someone to do something for them. It's just kind of not what you expect, right? It kind of throws you off a little bit. But I think that's the, the, the picture we're supposed to get here. Okay, so he's very he's very desperate. He very much wants his son to be healed. 
Now, this is what Jesus responds to him with. He says in John 4, 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. So what is he getting at here? I think this is kind of actually one of the most important parts of the passage. Uh, so, okay, to explain what, he, what I think Jesus is getting at here, I actually want to talk a little bit about logic. I took, a, I took one logic class in college. It was just enough to make me dangerous. Um, and I, I remember learning one of the basic parts of all logic is that it's like math, okay? So just like 2 plus 2 equals 4, and 2 plus 3 does not equal 4, in logic you sort of have basis for like this and this, you know, makes this proposition true. And a lot of times it gets stated as uh, P, if P, then Q, right? If proposition P is true, outcome Q will logically follow. I don't know why they chose P and Q, but you see that everywhere inside of logic textbooks. All right, so if it's raining outside, then I'll get wet if I go outside, okay? If that thing is true, the second thing is true as well. If this, then this. And so you get these sort of if-then statements. That's like a big part of logic is if this is true, then this is true. That's kind of the basis of how we, we think about logic. It's very mathematical. Now, you can apply this, I think, to what Jesus is talking about here with faith. He's talking about something that I think we could call if-then faith, okay? If Jesus gives me something I want, I will believe, okay? Uh, if Jesus is, is for keeping up the shelter-in-place order, then I'll follow him. Or if Jesus is up for lifting the restrictions, then I'll follow him. If Jesus supports my dreams and my identity, then I'll believe in him. If Jesus helps make me happier, then I'll believe in him. And if Jesus stops meeting, you can spin it the other way, if Jesus stops meeting my expectations, well, then I have to maybe consider my options or something like that, all right? That's if-then faith, all right? And I think we, uh, a lot of people sort of have this as their default understanding of faith, and it creeps into us all the time in ways I don't, I don't think we, we always under- expect either. Now, here, here's the thing. If-then faith is, is really easy, and it's attractive. Why do you think it's attractive? It's because it leaves you in control, right? You are choosing what to put your faith in only if certain satisfactions are being met. And then really, at that point, who holds the power then? Who, who is truly Lord? I think, I think there's a sense in which a lot of times if-then faith, you know, is not really even faith, right? And, and, and Jesus is saying, I don't want if-then faith, okay? I don't want to just have to be like a magician and, and do all these things to make people, you know, blow their minds or make them happy in order for them to have faith in me. Jesus wants faith that is going to recognize his worth no matter what. Even if you find that he is not meeting your expectation, whatever that expectation is, you're going to actually, instead of looking at him critically, you might look at the expectation critically because his worth is so great that you can't help but, uh, you can't help but acknowledge that he is who he says he is, that he is, uh, he is worth believing in because just because he's so great, not because of your expectations for him. Um, think of it like, again, this Last Dance documentary has been blowing up. I brought this up a couple weeks ago. I'm really sad that this is the first Sunday in five weeks that it's, I won't be able to look forward to watching this on Sunday night. And one of the things that really stood out to me in the documentary is that Michael Jordan is widely, you know, he's considered by everybody. You don't have to be a Bulls fan to, to just say, this is the GOAT. This guy is the greatest of all time. Even rivals of his, p- players who hated him when they played against him, when he was still playing in the NBA, still can't help but recognize this guy is 
the best to ever play. I, I, I hate the guy and I can't help but admit it. All right. Uh, that is like that. That's the type of faith that Jesus is looking for, where you can't you can't help but admit that, like, you know, I might not be finding my expectations being met here, but I can't I can't help but say that I want this to be true, and Jesus is worth following, even in the midst of that. And I'm going to reexamine my expectations as opposed to reexamining him. That's the type of faith that Jesus is looking for, and I think that's what he's getting at here, in verse 48. Now, verses 49 to 50, John continues. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. Continuing on, skipping to verse 53. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. So now despite this, despite Jesus sort of lamenting the fact that this guy seems to be wanting signs and wonders if he's going to believe, Jesus heals this guy's child. And so what we see is that Jesus, despite our oftentimes having if-then faith, he is still compassionate, graceful, loving, and faithful to serve us, to love us, to, to give us grace in the midst of a space where we don't, we don't really deserve it. We're not really, uh, we're not really uh, going about it in the right way. And this guy ends up taking Jesus at his word and, and, and having some faith now. So, so clearly, the passage and John is not saying, if you come to believe because of a miracle, if you come to believe because you had some satisfaction that Jesus meets it, that, that it's not valid, okay? That's not at all what we're saying here, okay? Jesus never sa- uh, John never says that. Jesus never says that. And, and so um, that's not what I'm trying to say when I talk about if-then faith here, all right? Now, all that said, we do know that Jesus makes some disciples in the book of John who later on leave him. And maybe this royal official was one of them. We, we don't know for sure. Um, we, we see that, like, think Jesus, you know, makes a lot of people get excited about who he is and what, what he's talking about, what he's doing with these signs and wonders. And they start saying some hard stuff that people are not necessarily, like, jacked about, and they start to leave him. And so I think you start to see in that instance Maybe there is some if-then faith going on with some of these people. I don't know about the royal official. We don't know. Let's assume the best. Let's assume that, that his sort of uh, starting out where he was leads to this real deep sort of faith that, that you know, breaks through his expectations. Like, let's, let's hope that that's what happens to him. Okay? But what, what the passage is saying is that Jesus is lamenting the fact that so many people need to be amazed or have their, uh, their criteria met before they're willing to believe. And they've decided um, that, to, you know, that they're only going to pursue Jesus with this if-then faith. Now, Jesus will surprise us sometimes. He'll meet us where we're at, and, and, and he'll do things that we're not expecting sometimes. Um, and so, so he'll meet us, you know, it's like, uh, it's not even if-then faith because, like, we didn't even have an expectation. We were floored by what we saw Jesus do in some way, and we can't help but believe. Jesus is going gonna, is gonna to meet us where we're at. He's going to surprise us, okay? So I'm not trying to create some sort of rigid system. I'm just saying what Jesus is lamenting, the fact that this if-then faith exists. But what he's looking for in all of this, and all that he's doing is, is for, for faith that believes even in the midst of death itself, and, and if then faith just really struggles to, to have that when, when, when hard times come, okay? Now, Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he himself wouldn't do. Jesus himself does not have an if-then faith. And we see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. This happens at the very end of Jesus' ministry, right before, the night before he's about to go on the cross. He's in a similar situation where he is staring death straight in the face. 
He knows what he's been called to do by God. He's not excited about it. And he actually prays to God to ask if this cup that is about to, he's about to drink can be taken from him. Okay, so Jesus even still asks, right, to, to get away, to, to not have to follow through on the task that he knows he's been appointed for. But he knows that he's going to have to do it, and he goes on in the midst of that anyway. He remains uh, faithful. He remains committed. He remains single-minded in his devotion, which is to follow God, to have faith and faithfulness. And because of that, our faith rests on his faithfulness. Okay, Because Jesus is willing to say, not my will, but yours be done, that when we fail and we are not able to say the same thing, when we have if-then if faith, we can rest on Jesus' faithfulness. Okay? The gospel, listen, the gospel is not that uh, we have a s- strong faith that satisfies uh, God's requirement for the level of faith necessary. Okay? That's a kind of if-then if faith, really. Okay? The gospel is Jesus' faithfulness to deliver us even when we fail him. And Paul actually, the Apostle Paul actually says this in 2 Timothy 2.13. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Okay, this is what the gospel is. And so even if when we have if-then faith, because we will all have it at some point, Jesus remains faithful to us, and our hope relies not on our faith, but on his faithfulness. And that's the gospel, okay? So that's the good news for those of us listening, right? For those of us who are uncomfortable, maybe, you know, looking at our hearts and thinking about, you know, what type of faith is, is there sometimes, like what type of faith we can exhibit sometimes. Now, I want to return sort of to what we were talking about earlier. What happens when Jesus doesn't heal, okay? Because obviously, if-then faith does not, uh, does not survive in that environment, right? Um, so what do we do when that happens? How do we think of faith there? And that's our first uh, point of application today, is that belief without a sign is a sign in and of itself. Now, I have seen from people at Rice City, from, from friends of mine, um, from different places in life, who stru- specifically who struggle with, with some sort of chronic illness, or maybe it's a mental health of some kind. I have seen incredible faith when God doesn't heal. Now, someone who's skeptical might say, well, that's just, you know, delusion or irrationality. It's, it's what Marx calls the opium of the masses, right? It's, it's not, it's just delusion, right? We shouldn't take that seriously. But I think it's evidence of, of a deeper sign than even what healing may have done in that instance. And that sign is God's power to win our hearts and to love, to, to love and to trust him even when the sun is not shining, okay? The faith that God works in our hearts, the faith that he is he's building up within us, the faith that he desires from us and is working to produce out of our hearts is a faith that believes the sun will come out even when it's pitch black out, a faith that trusts and hopes even when things are hard. If things are hard, you can't really have that faith, right? And so what, what God is going to do sometimes is going to put us in different situations where he's going to test that faith. Some of us will find us in admittedly harder positions than others. And when that happens, like, we need to celebrate what is taking place there, that God is working a, a sign in those people's hearts that is even greater than if he'd healed in the midst of that, okay? It's easy to confuse healing or whatever thing you're praying for, whatever thing, you, you know, is going to make you happy in the moment with God's blessing, But God himself is the blessing. And if you get him in deeper ways through trial, then that's a sign that God's at work. Okay, because that in turn points to his worth in the moment. And and, and that's that's better than than the faith that you're going to have without that. Okay, 
So when we call Jesus king, when we call him the goat, when things are hard, that's powerful. It's powerful for our own hearts to find that even when God is not being this sort of moralistic, therapeutic, deist God, we still can find fulfillment and satisfaction, even when it's incredibly painful, incredibly difficult, incredibly hard. Okay, that's a sign for us, and it's a sign for people around us that points to the worth of the God that we follow, the God that we believe in. And so our second point of application, and this is actually where I want to close, is that we should celebrate with those who persevere in the midst of, of pain and hardship and not seeing God heal just as much as we do with those whose prayers are answered. Okay, we, we celebrate with people when we see God heal, and we're, we're rightfully very excited about that because we have seen God work in the midst of that. That's a good thing. We should continue to do it. But I think where we, we sometimes don't celebrate where we should is when we find people who remain faithful, who have a foundation of faith that bubbles up out of them even when it's hard. And I know for those of you who have chronic pain or 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 or, or um, some sort of you know maybe you you have disease whether it's in you or or in a, another family member or someone you know that you've not seen God heal. I know that that it's really hard, and you look at that sometimes as thinking, ah oh, man. I suck at this. Like, I'm not actually doing a very good job of this. But I actually can say from experience, from watching people I know going through that, that you are an inspiration to me. You're an inspiration to other people as well. As we see you, even in the midst of how hard it is, right? In the midst of how frustrating it can be to live with chronic pain or to not see God heal, that you still call Jesus Lord. You still find that faith, like, I just want to celebrate that in you, okay? And if you don't have that, but you know people who are like that, then I actually want you to just reach out to them today and just thank them for their faith and their belief and their perseverance and endurance, even in the midst of hardship, okay? And I know that for a lot of people, you know, are you're having to think about this in the midst of, of reopening society as, right, as we go back to work for some, some of you may be immunocompromised. Um, and I just want to like, say thank you for your perseverance and your faithfulness like in the midst of all this all right uh thank you yeah you are an inspiration to us and that is us we we see the sign of god working in the midst of you um in all these different ways okay all right i want to pray for us and then we're going to do that question and answer time um and then we'll we'll wrap things up father thank you that you have um you have given us signs that your kingdom is on its way, um, and you, you give us all sorts of different signs. Lord, you do choose to heal. Lord, you are a healing God who, who bends over and wipes away uh, the tears from our faces, Lord. And but we ha- when we have that as a hope, Lord, w- when things are made new at the restoration of all things, that we will all experience that. Lord, but we also thank you that we see you moving in the midst uh, of those who do not experience healing. God, I pray that you would give perseverance and endurance to those people uh, who are watching the sermon this, sun, this Sunday morning, whether it's, it's physical pain, whether it's, 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 mental, uh, it's, it's a mental health thing, Lord, whatever it is, I pray that you would remind them that you are working in their hearts through this and that you would give them uh, joy and hope in the midst of what is, what is always a difficult situation for them. Lord, we do pray for healing to come to them someday. Lord, but if you choose not to heal, we still find you as worthy in the midst of that, God. Take that as a, as a sign of, of our deep faith and love for you, God. Lord, we thank you that you, you love us and, and you give us faith so that we may inherit your kingdom someday, God. That is our greatest blessing. I pray that you would tune our hearts towards that each and every single day. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus, who was faithful even though we fail. Amen. All right, so do we have any questions? So we have a we question. Do, we do have one, yes. All right. Okay, so this question is acknowledging that Jesus doesn't want the transactional, what's in it for me type of faith, but is asking, what about doubters who just want a sign of truth? So kind of asking, anyone can tell a good story or a good lie, and no one wants to be misled. So is it wrong to just want proof of God's glory um, versus getting something of value? So to summarize it, it's kind of, is wanting a sign of the truth, if then faith? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually thought about talking about this a little bit in the sermon, and I don't think it's the same thing, okay? There is definitely a sort of um, a mindset among some Christians. Um, there's actually a philosophical school around this, too, by a guy named Soren Kierkegaard, um, and, and it's called fideism. Um, and, and what that is is sort of like, even in the midst where, where nothing else looks true in the moment— Okay? It looks like actually everything you believe is false. You still retain that belief. And I don't think that that's actually the faith that we're called to. Okay, I actually think that sort of singling out if-then faith is different than singling out, like, I want to see that the faith that I have produces certain fruit in me. Now, here the thing about faith, though, is that faith is willing to take steps even if it doesn't know what's happening. And I think like there, there's a there's a difference between like looking for uh for for evidences of our faith and truth of our faith as we're sort of seeking it out. We we have to open our hearts to that though, okay? Like we have to like open our hearts to see things through the lens of faith. Otherwise, we're not going to see them. And I think some people who like talk about themselves as skeptics or doubters a lot of times have basically like closed themselves off already, right? And I think that that's that's the difference there. So. I certainly have struggled with doubt in my life. We talked about skepticism in in earlier in John, and 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 actually we kind of we talked about what's what's like the ideal skeptic, and uh, we we find the the person Nathaniel who is like, man, he is like all about truth, and Jesus actually commends him for that. He actually says like this dude. He knows what's up, and like I really appreciate his discerning attitude because he's not about BS, right? He's not looking for that, and I think, but but you see Nathaniel when he sort of is confronted with the worth of who Jesus is, like he can't help but but go over that. He didn't have any sort of preconceived notions; he was just really discerning, and I think that's the sort of like skepticism that is, that is not if then faith, right? It's a sort of like I'm seeking out truth, and if I find it in Jesus, even if it's not necessarily the truth I'm looking for, right? I haven't I haven't had a specific expectation of what I expect the truth to look like, right? If God were real, like this is like what some people who are skeptics put out as like the thing that would, would tell them that God is real. Like, oh, if God shows up to me in a dream and tells me he's real or he, he does something in the sky, right? Like you, you will find skeptics. I've, I've listened to them on podcasts, like where they will say like, you know, someone asks them the hard question, like what will be the thing that would actually convince you that this is true? And like they're they're basically like I just don't think there's anything that could convince me that God is true. Or their bar is like so high that you can tell that like they're not really looking for truth. Like they're not willing to be surprised. So I think that's the type of faith that is not if then faith that still wants to see truth, right? And we should be seekers of truth. If we believe that the gospel is true, then that means that uh, like we should seek to find evidences of its truth in our lives, historically, scientifically. Like we should be seeking that stuff out. And if we find that like there's absolutely no way that this could be true, then I think that 
you know, that's not what this is talking about. If then faith has made its mind up beforehand and has a very specific set of criteria about what will convince it that, like, faith in Jesus is true. And that's, I don't think that that, that, that that's what, like, you're talking about in the question. I think that they're still very different because of what their starting point is. So, yeah, I hope that answers your question. That's a really good one. Oh, we got another question, it looks like. All right, we got time, I think. I don't have anything else going on after this today. All right, um, let's see. Are healings always a sign? As in, do the mass healings in the Gospels, like when the crowds press in on Jesus and the bleeding woman touches his robes, do they function similarly as a sign of relationship with God, or were they a greater part of his ministry to serve the poor and oppressed, or both? Yeah, that's a good question, too. Um, I think that um, you can look at it for sure both ways, right? When Jesus heals... Um, and we'll, we'll actually talk a little bit about this um, in a couple of chapters when we talk about Jesus uh, feeding the 5,000 people and he's like uh, with, with, the, with all the bread and the loaves of fish. It's kind of a, a, f- a famous story in the Gospels. But what, uh, what Jesus is doing, right? So Jesus shows up on the scene and he's trying to announce that the kingdom of God has come and it's being fulfilled through his ministry and through him. And so to do that, um, he is doing these sort of signs that are sort of pointing towards the fact that the kingdom has come. Okay, and that's why they're signs. They're pointing towards the greater reality that God's kingdom is beginning to come. It's 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 kind of here. It's already here. It's not yet fully here, and it'll fully come someday. And we're trying to alert people to the truth of that, to elicit belief in them. Now, you can spin it another way, though, too. And I think this is an equally important way to look at it, that what it looks like when God's kingdom comes is that people find healing, that the poor are cared for, um, that, that, that the hurting find hope and healing. That's what it looks like when God's kingdom comes. And that's what we will, you know, we see in Revelation, right? That's that, that sort of tender relational aspect of it. Now, when we follow Jesus in trying to be his kingdom people to Lord, to sort of bring his kingdom to earth, we do it through trying to bring faith and belief in people. But we're also trying to just do the stuff that is a part of the kingdom, which means we are trying to be healers as well. Okay, We should follow Jesus in being healers in whatever situation we're put in. Now, if that leads to belief, that is great. I think that's what we should, we should hope for and pray for. If it doesn't lead to belief, though, being healers like Jesus is, is still important. Right? Jesus is doing healing for people in Massians. We don't know if they all came to believe. They probably didn't. Right? And like I said, some people come to believe in Jesus through his signs in the book of John. Some of them leave. Some of them don't come to have real belief. That's okay. We should be called to be healers like Jesus, and, and, and no matter what, just for the good of people, and we should pray that faith comes as a part of that. God's ultimately the one that works out that faith in people. Um, but yeah, um, I think we should. I think the answer is both, like like you said in the question. So 